people. It truly is an honor and a joy to be with you today. Um, I'm so grateful, Rick and uh, the other leaders up here. Thank y'all so much for leading us into the presence of the Lord in worship. Um, I actually had the chance to meet Rick at Louisiana College about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, as he and others from First Baptist were leading our entire cooperative work through the Louisiana Baptist Convention in Pineville at Louisiana College. Um, so thank you, thank Noah, you know, for doing that. So appreciate you brothers so much. Um, I can't begin to tell you how deeply encouraged I've been uh, by your pastor search committee by your pastor emeritus, Pastor David, who's a, who's a longtime friend, uh, to your interim pastors, Pastors Jamie and Bo, who are friends, and every one of you with whom I've had the honor of spending time with over the last three days. I wish I could have had time with every one of you to be able to, to just hear your story, to hear how the Lord led you to First Baptist New Orleans um, and to New Orleans and to just be able to get to know you. So I look forward to those days, Lord willing, ahead. Every step of this journey has been marked with God's fingerprints so that our family could rest in his leadership. And then I feel like your pastor search committee and now you as a congregation could rest in the Lord's leadership in this process because it is an important one and it has been a long time coming for each of us. I never want to miss the opportunity to be able to tell the world how much I love my incredible wife and best friend, Cole Gilbert, with whom I've been blessed with 17 years of marriage. Um, the Lord has blessed us during these 17 years with five children. We lost our first child in a miscarriage. And then God has blessed us with four amazing kids, one who's in childcare, but Ava, Grayson, Brogan, and then Livy, who's over there, 12, 9, 6, and 4. Um, and so I love to go home every day and spend time with my boys and girls and do all kind of great things with them, especially here in this city where there's so much to do. Of the past 16 years, we have lived in New Orleans, 14 of those, um, 10 of which I pastored Edgewater Baptist Church, as was mentioned a little while ago. Um, and I will forever be indebted to them because they graciously allowed me to grow while leading as a minister of the gospel. We walked through Hurricane Katrina with Edgewater together, and then with Trinity Baptist Church in Lake Charles through Hurricanes Laura and Delta that have just, just been taking place. And with that said, I want to put you on notice that major hurricanes seem to follow where I move. And so <laughs> take time this winter to review your policies. Um, in all seriousness, can we stop for a moment and just pray for those, including in Central America, that uh, this hurricane season has been something. You and in New Orleans going through one, but there's just been so much devastation. So let's stop and pray for our brothers and sisters in this moment. Father, I thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for how you continue to mobilize your church, Father, to go to the hurting. Um, to go and serve in devastated regions. And so we lift up our brothers and sisters this morning who are still endeavoring to rebuild their lives, um, who are persevering in the faith by, even if they don't have a church building standing any longer, they're gathering this morning, um, whether it be virtual or in person. Lord, they are, they are persevering in the faith. And so, God, we give you the credit for that. Um, because you who called us is faithful and you will do it. And Father, the work that you began, you will see forward to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to your people. It is unwavering. Um, thank you, Father, for the presence of your spirit. And we pray that you would fill them this morning in Central America, Father, um, in the, um, along the Gulf Coast and other places that have been impacted this hurricane season, that they might continue. And that you would provide for them and protect them and use these storms, God, for your glory in the advancement of the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Now, 
when I had the opportunity to preach in view of a call at Edgewater Baptist Church 12 years ago, the passage that I preached from was Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Again, two years ago, when I sensed God's leadership to Trinity Baptist Church in Lake Charles, God again returned me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And today, I'm convinced that it's God's good plan to again return to this life-orienting passage as we continue this journey of faith together. And so I invite you to turn in God's Word to Hebrews chapter 12, and this morning we will be spending our time in verses 1 through 3. You see, God has opened my eyes unlike ever before to see that this moment of transition in my life is not a matter of changing purpose. My purpose is and shall forever be to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. But I want to share my heart with you today from this passage and how the Lord has graciously opened my eyes to see this text with greater clarity than I had previously known. You see, the main idea of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is the exhortation, the call, the command to run with perseverance the race that lies before us. The Greek word for run is treko. And in this context, it means to make every effort to advance spiritually, to exert oneself to the limit of one's powers in an attempt to go forward. The writer of Hebrews is using the imagery of an ancient foot race in a stadium in order to capture our attention and to illustrate the Christian life in community as a church. To advance spiritually shall require the greatest effort. But we must not err as to think that we know best how to strive on our own. If our salvation is a gift of God's grace, then we ought to expect that striving towards Christ in the Christian life together as a body will no less be a gift of God's grace. And I have wonderful news. Today, Scripture communicates the grace of God so that we might run and strive and know the will of God as it pertains to the call to run with endurance the race that lies before us. In the late 1920s and in the early 1930s, there was a young Italian-American boy who was terrorizing the small community of Torrance, California, stealing fresh-baked pies from kitchens, treats from local grocers, and anything else that was not bolted down on someone's property. This kid could be seen running all over town, running from angry neighbors, running from angry kids, running away from home, running away from the police. But all that changed in 1933 when the University of California in Los Angeles hosted a cross-country two-mile race in which Louie, now a 16-year-old high school student, competed. Rather than having trained for the two-mile race, young Louis Zamperini had previously only competed in a one-mile race. His running career was early, and truth be told, what would happen that day in 1933 at UCLA would change the course of Louis's life because he realized something very profound about himself that day. You see, Louis won the race that day, but not simply by a nose ahead of second place. 
No, when Louis crossed the finish line, second place was more than a quarter of a mile behind him. He had essentially lapped a collegiate athlete as a novice high school runner. And what Louis realized that day was this, that he was born to run. And just like Louis Zamperini, you and I together were born again to run. You see, Louis had been running all of his life, but not running the race and certainly not running the race to win. When he finally ran the race and he ran it to win, he ran like he had never run before and he was only getting started. I'm convinced that I'm in a room full of runners today, but are we running the race with endurance that lies before us? And if so, are we running the race with endurance that lies before us in order to win the prize? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, speaking to us corporately, that you, First Baptist New Orleans, may obtain the prize. In Philippians 3.14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that we were born again to run and to run the race, running to win. And so today in Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through three, we will see that we as the people of God are instructed to run with perseverance the race that lies before us. You and I are born again runners but you will not really believe that. It will not really transform our experience as a body until we have that breakthrough moment like Louis Zamperini did in 1933 when you begin to run to win the prize. Just running doesn't mean that you're running the race. In New Orleans, the only difference between Mardi Gras and the Crescent City Classic is everyone is running in the same direction through the French Quarter. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be sober-minded, so let us run in the same direction. Together, let us run in accordance with the Scriptures as to obtain the prize. I want to invite you to stand in honor of God's Word as I read from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We stand in reverence of God because it is He who speaks. This is His Word over His people. And so hear the Word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. Father, I pray today that you will unite our hearts in your word to run the race that you have set before us. Our eyes fixed on Jesus, a full awareness of those who have gone before us, persevering, Father, in your word. And it's in Christ Jesus' name that I pray. 
Amen. You can be seated. God's word here in Hebrews chapter 12 is clear that if we are to run with endurance the race that lies before us, then there are three aspects to our running. Now, I didn't make these up. That's in the text. There's three participles that surround this one command. And so those are the three aspects that we're called to run. And so here's how I would say it. We are to run inspired by the word. We are to run instructed by the word. And we are to run intensely focused on the word. We're to run inspired by the word. We are to run instructed by the word. And we are to run intensely focused on the word. Run inspired by the word. The first word of Hebrews chapter 12 is therefore. Now, a great question to ask when you see the word therefore is to ask, what is it therefore? In this passage, the therefore is one of the most masterful journeys through the Old Testament that is recorded in the New Testament. Central to chapter 11 is the call to faith, which is trust and belief in the word of God. I want to read all of chapter 11 so that you, the body, experience the movement of this passage. And so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, hear the word of the Lord. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by it, our ancestors won God's approval. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch, when he was taken away, he did so and did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he, commended the, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs, of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as, new, and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance and greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. 
Now, those that say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it was said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons, each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger for Moses, persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. By faith, he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and afflicted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All of these were approved through their faith that they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the writer knows that we need the reminder of how the faithful have always persevered of how they have always fought valiantly, how they have always sacrificed, how they have always considered the promise of God of greater worth than the things of this earth. But notice how the writer of Hebrews grips our attention and endeavors to inspire us today to run with perseverance the race that lies before us. He brought us 
into the word of God. Hebrews 11 is a survey of the entire Old Testament. We are all gripped by stories. We are all inspired by the testimonies of those who share about how God has worked in some specific way. The story that I began to tell earlier about Louis Zamperini is ultimately a story of God's grace, of how Louis fought in World War II, was shot down in the Pacific Theater, survived two months adrift in the Pacific Ocean, only to be captured by the Japanese and tortured until the end of the war. Following the war, the trauma of his experience threatened to destroy his marriage and leave him an alcoholic, but God. Through the evangelistic preaching of Billy Graham, opened Louis's heart to receive Christ and brought healing and salvation to his soul. You see, reading Louis Zamperini's story by Laura Hillenbrand in her biography called Unbroken was inspiring. But Laura Hillenbrand certainly erred in her book at times. You see, when any biographer studies the life of a person, inevitably, interpretive decisions must be made. A writer will choose to give emphasis to some aspects and influences in a person's life while minimizing others. A writer will piece together a context, but may miss a contextual force that might have influenced that person more than realized. In short, any biography and any history that you purchase today will be imperfect. But the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there's great reward. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. We must never allow ourselves, brothers and sisters, to substitute, to replace the inspired word of God for chicken soup for the Christian soul. God preserved his word for thousands and thousands of years for our benefit today in the faith. Each of these in chapter 11 grant us a gift of a man or a woman who trusted God. And their stories are meant, they are intended to encourage us and inspire us to do the same, to keep the faith. What is significant about the entire book of Hebrews is that it is essentially a sermon about the Old Testament. The writer talks about the law of Moses, the prophets, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, and the temple. It's almost as if he expects that we will be reading the Old Testament. Yet statistics reveal that here in the West, very few believers ever read the Bible. The result so few confessing Christians are inspired to run with perseverance the race that lies before us. But I have some good news. Faith Life conducted a study and determined that believers who read the Bible four or more days a week 
are most often growing Christians, an identity marked by greater levels of joy, forgiveness, self-control, love, and peace. And I don't know any Christian who says, I got all the joy, self-control, love, and peace I need. So one of the first challenges that I desire to issue in the life of First Baptist New Orleans is that we will be people of the book, people of his word, who are reading his word a minimum of four days per week. But let me be very practical by saying, start where you are. If you've not been in the habit of reading the Bible, then for the remainder of this year, I want to encourage and challenge you to start in the gospel of Luke. Maybe read a paragraph a day, or perhaps a unit with a subtitle each day. I desire for each one of you to be men and women, boys and girls, who run with endurance the race that lies before you. Therefore, we must be inspired by the word. And that will only take place as we center our lives in his word. Second, we must run instructed by the word. We must run instructed by the word. In the text, this is how it's said. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. The organization, which was the governing body for, for, for professional cycling in Great Britain, had recently hired a man named Dave Brailsford as its new performance director. At the time, professional, professional cyclists in Great Britain had endured nearly 100 years of mediocrity. Since 1908, British riders had only won a single gold medal at the Olympic Games, and they had fared even worse in cycling's biggest race, the Tour de France. In 110 years, no British cyclist had ever won the event. In fact, the performance of British riders had been so underwhelming that one of the top bike manufacturers in Europe refused to sell bikes to the team because they were afraid it would hurt sales if other professionals saw the Brits using their gear. Brailsford had been hired to put British cycling on a new trajectory. What made him different from the previous coaches was his relentless commitment to a strategy referred to as the aggregation of marginal gains. The aggregation of marginal gains which was the philosophy of searching for a tiny margin of improvement in everything you do. Brailsford said the whole principle came from the idea that if you broke down everything you could think of that goes into riding a bike and then improve it by 1%, you would get a significant increase when you then put them all back together. Brailsford and his coaches began by making small adjustments that you might expect from professional cycling. They redesigned the bike seats to make them more comfortable. They rubbed alcohol on the tires to give them better grip. They asked the riders to wear electrically heated overshorts to maintain ideal muscle temperature while riding and use biofeedback sensors to monitor how each athlete would respond to a particular workout. The team tested various fabrics in a wind tunnel to, to, and switched to indoor racing suits to improve their, their performance. But they didn't stop there. Brailsford and his team continued to find 1% improvements in overlooked and unexpected areas. 
they tested different types of massage gels to see which one led to the fastest muscle recovery. They hired a surgeon to teach their athletes how to wash their hands to help cut down on the chance of catching a cold. They determined what type of pillow and mattress led to the best night's sleep for each athlete. And when they traveled, they brought their own mattresses and pillows so that each athlete would get optimal sleep. They even painted the inside of their team truck white so that they could easily spot even the smallest accumulation of dust that could impair the performance of finely tuned bikes. As these and hundreds of other small improvements accumulated, the results came faster than anyone could have ever imagined. Just five years after Brailsford took over, the British cycling team dominated the road and track cycling events at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, where they won an astounding 60% of the gold medals available. Four years later, when the Olympic Games came to London, the Brits raised the bar and set nine Olympic records and seven world records. That same year, Bradley Wiggins became the first British cyclist to win the Tour de France. The next year, his his teammate Chris Froome won the race, and he would go on to win again in 2015, in 2016, and in 2017, giving the British team five Tour de France victories in six years. During the 10-year span from 2007 to 2017, British cyclists won 178 world championships, 66 Olympic or Paralympic gold medals, and five Tour de France victories in what is widely regarded as the most successful cycling run in history. God's word says in Hebrews 12:1, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Now, does the text identify what every hindrance is or the sin that so easily ensnares us? No, it does not. Scholars and faithful readers can certainly make educated guesses at what is implied, but such is unnecessary. The text says every, every hindrance. So what if First Baptist New Orleans embraced Dave Brailsford's approach to improving everything by 1%? And here is where being in the word on a regular basis becomes so key. Because as you read through the scriptures, you will naturally come to areas, all areas of life. You will come to marriage. You will come to parenting, work, sexuality, wealth, relationships, church, and so on. You see, as I read through Ephesians 6, as a husband, I'm challenged to love Cole as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands, what if as a result of reading Ephesians 6, just by being in the word of God, you began to endeavor to love your your wife 1% better? Chad, how do I measure that? Brother, I'm pretty sure your wife's going to let you know. (laughs) Wives, as a result of reading Ephesians 6, what if you tried to honor and respect your husband 1% better? We are all children, though most of us in this room are adult children, but God's command to honor your father and mother does not say until you move out or grow up, which means that every one of us could seek to improve honoring our father and mother by 1%. 
a question that will naturally surface in both the Old Testament and the New Testament in multiple passages. What if we all tried to honor God with our bodies 1% better as a result of reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6? What if we tried to read our Bibles 1% better as a result of reading Hebrews chapter 11? What if we tried to be 1% more generous to the church as a result of reading Acts 2 or 2 Corinthians chapter 8? What if we volunteered 1% better, more faithfully, to help serve the church in our community as a result of reading Romans 12? What if we sought to improve in prayer by 1% as a result of reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 or 1 Timothy chapter 2? You see, I am hopeful that when an entire church decides to get 1% better at everything in the course of a natural reading through God's word, then when it all comes to being together, the effect will be as it was for the Brits, greater than we could have ever anticipated. When it comes to being a witness for Christ and a disciple who makes disciples, the men, women, boys, and girls who constantly seek to honor Christ 1% more with their entire lives will be the men, women, boys, and girls who will speak 1%, maybe 10%, maybe 100% more boldly for Christ. They will be 1%, 10%, 100% more effective at sharing the gospel They will be the ones who are inviting their friends, their relatives, associates, and neighbors to worship and to know Christ. They will be bold as lions. I love the definition of boldness that my friend, Dr. Preston Nix, over at the seminary once shared with me. He said, boldness is going one step beyond my comfort level. Just one step. You see, at the end of the day, perhaps the greatest hindrance, hear my heart on this, Perhaps the greatest hindrance that needs to be laid aside and the sin that so easily ensnares us is not striving, is not even trying to improve, not even by 1%. We all have our comfort levels. We all have a pace that we're comfortable running, but now is the time, First Baptist New Orleans, to run 1% better in every area of our lives in accordance with God's word. So we are to run with perseverance the race that lies before us, inspired by the word as we consider the surrounding of those who have gone before us. We are to run with perseverance the race that lies before us, instructed by the word in every area of life. And we are to run the race that lies before us, intensely focused on the word. Let's see it in the text. It says, let us run with perseverance the race that lies before us, our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you, so that you and I won't grow weary and give up. Now, someone hearing me today might say, Chad, The text calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus, not on the Bible. I will immediately acknowledge that the the text says we are to be fixing our eyes on Jesus. But then I would counter with a question, how do we know we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus? The, The question has an obvious answer because that's what the word of God says. I would not know to fix my eyes on Jesus unless the word explicitly told me to fix my eyes on Jesus. The reality then becomes that the 
that only by focusing on the word will I rightly know that it is the will of God to focus on Jesus. In fact, I will even go so far as to say that we will not rightly see and focus on Jesus apart from the word of God. Therefore, the only way that I can fully and faithfully call us toward obedience is through the instruction to fix our eyes on Jesus in his word. You see, they're not at odds. But I'm convinced that if I set my eyes only to look to Jesus without looking to the word, then I will be led astray. My heart will go in many directions. But this, this is the trustworthy means of drawing near to Christ Jesus, our Lord. Only in the word do we discover and delight to see the one who alone perfectly displayed faith, a perfect trust in the will of the Father. Only Jesus uttered the words, not my will, but yours be done. Every example of faith and faithfulness in Hebrews chapter 11 stops short of perfection. Each person mentioned having not only commendable moments of faith, but corresponding moments of doubt, distrust, and disobedience. But not Jesus. Jesus is the source and perfecter of our faith. In other words, he is the greatest demonstration of faith, the ultimate example of faith, the only complete model of faith. Yet we come again to the reality that apart from an intense focus on the word of God, we will not hear Jesus say, not my will, but yours be done. Apart from an intense focus on the word of God, we will not see our savior enduring the cross, despising the shame. Apart from an intense focus on the word of God, we will not behold the king seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Apart from an intense focus on the word of God, we cannot consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that we will not grow weary and give up. Apart from an intense word focus on the word of God, we will not fix our eyes on Jesus. And if we do not fix our eyes on Jesus, then we will not run with endurance the race that lies before us. Therefore, First Baptist, let us run. Inspired by the word of God, in his word on a regular and faithful basis. Let us run instructed by the word in every area of life. And let us run intensely focused on the word that we might see Jesus and see him high and lifted up and that we might be a people who exalt him in every part of our lives and our being fully given to him because we have known him through his word. But this, but this is a race that can only by, be run by those who qualify. You see, the reality is this. The major races that take place here in the United States, the New York Marathon, the Boston Marathon, only allow those to run who have qualified, who have the time necessary in order to get into the race to run it. And here's the reality. What is the qualification to run in this race of Hebrews chapter 12? Well, it's simple. It's perfection. To qualify to run this race, you must have perfect endurance, perfect focus, perfect completion. 
bad news for all of us here today is none of us is perfect. But the good news for every one of us here today is this, that there is one and only one who is perfect. And he, because of his incredible kindness, is willing to give you his qualification to run the race as a gift. His perfect record becomes yours. His perfect endurance becomes yours. His perfect focus becomes yours. His perfect completion becomes yours. And all of this is not because of anything that you and I have done. It is his grace. Grace received through faith in Christ. And so my question is this, will you trust him today? Because it would be foolish for any of us to run this race on our own. Now we must trust in the one who ran faithfully and crossed the finish line and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it is only as we come to a faith in him, trusting in his completed race, in his completed race that took him to the cross where he suffered and died for you and I. It is only as we trust in him who alone is perfect that we then become a new creation to run the race with endurance that lies before us. And brothers and sisters, he is faithful. He who called you is faithful and he will do it and you will run by his grace to the end. But there are some here today, perhaps, who you see that there is a race and there is a desire in your heart to run the race. The only way to begin the race is to leave the starting blocks with eyes fixed on Jesus, trusting him alone and giving your heart to him alone. Father, I pray that in this moment that each one of us would again fix our eyes on Jesus. He alone is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us consider him today. And maybe for someone here today, Father, I pray that this will be the first time that they will have truly considered that only Jesus Only Jesus is the way for them to be able to run in this life. If that's you today, in the quietness of this moment as we are all in prayer and all fixing our eyes on Jesus, if that's you today saying, I want to fix my eyes on Jesus, I want to trust and follow him, I want to invite you to leave the starting blocks by leaving your seat to start that race just by leaving your seat in faith and coming forward to say, I want to follow Jesus. There are people here, actually everyone in this room, praying for you right now that you would start this journey with us in faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you, I want to invite you just with courage in Christ to leave your seat now and come forward that I might be able to pray with you for a moment.